HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at our borders in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli in the supermarket, but what is beyond the sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is John McCarthy, who is a former lawyer with 20 years of experience. He successfully made a dramatic career change and became a chef. In 2012, he opened the Crimson Sparrow in Hudson Valley and earned a great reputation. And he joined me on episode 29 and talked all about his life journey and his restaurant. And in July last year, 2017, John opened another beautiful Japanese-influenced restaurant called Oka in Mary Hill in Manhattan. John frequently visits Japan 
and uh, even started to speak Japanese frequently. And uh, through building and managing two successful Japanese influenced restaurants, he keeps discovering interesting new flavors of Japanese cuisine. So today we'll discuss John's idea of Japanese cuisine and the fascinating concept of his new restaurant, Oka. His recent trip to Japan to study wagashi or Japanese sweets and much, much more. But before we start, Japan Needs is available on Heritage Radio Network. Website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We do really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. And you can email us at japanneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or kikokatema.com. Now let's start our conversation with John McCarthy. Hello, John. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Almost 100 episodes later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm looking for the next one already. Um, okay, so first of all, uh, for listeners who have not listened to episode 29, uh, could you tell us your background? Sure, uh, and shame on them. They should uh, download all of these past episodes and listen to them. Fascinating <laughs> people. Uh, I, li- I do listen to them quite often. Um, background. Uh, I just opened uh, Oka uh, five months ago, six months ago, uh, in Murray Hill. Uh, before that, uh, we had uh, a, a restaurant up in Hudson, New York, uh, called the Crimson Sparrow. Uh, the two concepts are, are quite different. Uh, in the Hudson Valley, we were doing uh, a tasting menu. We had a, a, an a la carte bar food type mm-hmm. program as well. But uh, the one in Murray Hills is much more casual, right. um, inspired by the izakaya of Japan that are, uh, you know, places where people okay. go to drink and eat, that kind of thing. So we're going to detail on that later. Oh, but, but you want to know about me. I hate talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> I can ask you some questions. No, that's okay. I uh, so I, uh, I, I, I grew the real quick sketch is I grew up in Maryland, spent... Uh, uh, three years in Korea, uh, when South Korea. When he was uh, high school. So. Uh, high school, yeah, high school. And then uh, came back, went to college, went to law school, worked as a lawyer in uh, uh, Delaware, Tennessee, New York. Um, always wanted to be in the restaurant industry. Uh, and it, at some point, I can't re- pinpoint the exact day, uh, but uh, decided I'd had enough and went to uh, then French Culinary Institute. Uh, mm. I think it's now the ICC, International mm-hmm. Culinary Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, left there, uh, went to work for uh, Wiley Dufresne at WD-50, uh, then left there and opened the Crimson Sparrow. So mm-hmm. that's the long and short. Right, what a journey. I, and uh, I think you are in Korea at your very formative years of high school, like. Uh, 13 till I was almost 17. Mm, Right. So that's how you got familiar with uh, Asian culture, including Japanese cuisine. Yeah. When I was in Korea, we traveled quite a bit. Uh, Japan, uh, Philippines, Taiwan, Hong Kong. Uh, My parents were were incredibly, um, you know, energetic that way. And and it really, it sort of starts a bug in, in someone. You know, once you travel, once you taste different things, you want more of it. Mm. Um, you know, I, I remember my parents telling me that, you know, don't worry about school. If you miss a day or two, traveling is much more of an education. And they were exactly right. Mm, right. 
Okay. I, I don't I don't recommend dropping out of school and traveling, but mm-hmm. if you have the opportunity, right. uh, you mu- you should travel. Right, because you can study, but you can you cannot travel anytime you want. So that's uh, right. the the more you grow up, you realize <laughs> taking vacation. Oh, is I realize. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, and uh, so you closed uh, the Crimson Spiral to open Oka in Manhattan, but you got a great reputation uh, for the quality of food and the unique concept of the Crimson Spiral. So what kind of food did you serve at the Crimson Spiral? Well, like I said, we, we started out um, doing an a la carte menu, and uh, about a year in, uh, we, uh, I think it was a year anniversary, we decided, why don't we offer a tasting menu? Some people had asked us about it, uh, because you know, we came from a background where we did a tasting menu. Um, I think there were also there were some people who were somewhat confused by the the, the menu, how they should order. Mm. Um, and I tell the story. I think that first weekend we offered it, you know, ninety eight percent of the people ordered the tasting menu, so mm. it made it kind of easy to transition into that uh, into that type of a concept. Right. The type of food was really um, uh, how to describe it. Um, I mean, it was small plates. It was, mm. We grew the tasting menu from, it was about seven courses. And, you know, towards the end we were doing, uh, at one point we did two different menus, seven courses, 12 courses. It was somewhere between 10 and 12 courses. Right. Uh, so, you know, small plates, um, you know, focusing on a particular ingredient. Hopefully um, we were able to get something for several dishes uh, that would be local. Mm. Uh, we were located uh, within a mile of of two farms and then there were several other farms up there that were located within two Mm. or three miles. Right. So I'd imagine uh, sounds like, you know, that time uh, when you opened uh, Crimson Spiral Crimson Crimson Spiral was 2012 and then up until like the next couple of years it's more like tasting menu for guest restaurants open up all over the place and it's like to me it's more like kaiseki cuisine you Mm. know, like courses after courses and 10, 12 dishes. I think the the comparison is not unfair in terms of the concept because you're in that tasting menu. What we were trying to do was you know offer something that was uh, vegetable based, farm based, mm. in, in the in the beginning of the menu, um, then offering something that was uh, a bit more substantial, include something grilled or steamed, mm. um, and then to finish with a larger uh, format plate. Uh, and then the desserts, uh, you know, we, we tried to draw just sort of inf- inspiration from, uh, you know, Japanese or Asian flavors. There's a, there's some Korean uh, elements that do make it into my food as well because, mm. you know, I did uh, eat a fair bit of it for a couple of years and uh, it did make an impression. Mm, okay. Yes, yeah, I asked that, you know, the kaiseki word because now I'm going to talk about Oka because Oka let's talk about Oka yeah let's talk about (laughs) Oka because uh, you opened Oka in July last year and uh, some media people called it Izakaya not Kaiseki and that's it's a confusion because you don't want to call it Izakaya right so can you just uh, elaborate on the concept of Oka sure Um, Kaiseki Omakase uh, Kanot Denote um, sort of a set menu, mm. a tasting menu, uh, or a chef's choice on the menu. Um, it, the the concept of you know, the general concept of izakaya um, encompassing what is an izakaya in Japan. Um, you know, izakaya are usually smaller, uh, more informal uh, places where you can go and and you know drink shochu, sake, beer, highballs. Um, you know, they offer smaller plates to accompany the food. 
Um, and you know, th those types of places, uh, the energy is is really, um, I think, great. Mm. Uh, much more akin to, say, uh, you know, an Irish pub or uh, you know, a, a, a busy tapas lounge mm. where people are going and get a drink, socialize, you know, either at lunch or after work or whatever the case may be. But you know, that it's more, it's a very convivial atmosphere. Mm. And so the idea was to take the concept of an izakaya, um, take the Japanese flavors ingredients that I enjoy, mm. uh, and maybe some of the dishes that I've had, push them through, you know, the prism of my mind, um, and you know, change them up a little bit, uh, you know, make them more uh, identifiable with me, not of Japanese food and not of Japanese izakaya, mm. uh, because you know, we, you and I talked about it. I don't want someone going to Japan and saying. You know, oh my God, it's my first time in Japan. I had this Japanese dish of ikora and yeasted sunchoke puree. Can I have that? And, you know, no one's going to understand that. But mm -hmm. the idea is to take the, the best parts and concepts of an izakaya and kind of recreate it the best we can in, in Oka. Mm, so, sounds like um, the definition of izakaya for you is the energy and uh, approachable dishes. Sure, and, and you know, we also strive to have, you know, much like an izakaya in Japan, an izakaya here in New York. There's some fantastic izakaya uh, mm. in, in New York. Um, you know, we, we try to offer what we think is a, a strong and, and very delicious sake menu. Mm. Uh, we have a, a pretty pretty good shochu selection. Uh, we're trying to, to grow that as the customers come to us and learn about shochu. Mm. Um, and we have a, an incredible selection of Japanese whiskeys, mainly uh, from Suntory, um, and also uh, a great selection of Japanese beers. Mm. Right. So opening Izakaya in Manhattan is something you wanted to do because you moved and not in Hudson. So it says I was doing a lot of these dishes in Hudson uh, as part of you know, sort of our informal, informal, more informal uh, bar menu. Mm. And so when the opportunity uh, from my partner, uh, Simon Shi came up, uh, we talked about the concept that we thought would fit in Murray Hill, which, you know, Murray Hill is, is a young, uh, young professional driven neighborhood. We, you know, agreed that it should be sort of like a, an izakaya, mm. a, a bit more informal, no tablecloths. Uh, you know, we offer chopsticks and paper napkins, uh, but we wanted the food to be um, accessible, but also, you know, quite interesting. Mm. And, and I think we've achieved that balance. I mean, there's still, it's only six months in, so, right. uh, you know, we're still striving to find uh, sort of the sweet spot uh, for the menu mm. and what people like. Um, right. But, you know, the, the interior of Oka is somewhat minimalist. And it could be fine dining, but the energy is open kitchen and energy from uh, servers and the chef. And it's a really fun place to be, too. I, so. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> I've actually had people sit down and say, I thought this would be more formal. Uh, so I, I don't, it, it's very different in its concept. Um, you know, this, the, the appearance of it, it, it's going to fill out a little bit. Um, but the appearance of it, yes, could be construed as, as formal, but there's nothing formal about our service, nothing formal about the food. Um, and when I say formal, I mean super fine dining. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my, my staff is incredibly friendly. Um, 
you know, they, they want to have as much fun as the guests. You know, they're at right. work, but they don't want to work. <laughs> they don't want it to feel like work. They're right. doing a hard job. They do it well, and they do it with a smile. And that's kind of the atmosphere we really want to push, right. push I've forward. I've been there a couple of times. So I, I laughed loud with your service <laughs> a couple of times already. So, <laughs> right. um, Okay. And Oka, by the way, means uh, hill. Hill. Murray Hill. That's correct. It right. was a, uh, that name was a... a, come up, a, 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 a given to me by, by Chris Johnson, uh, the Saki Ninja. Mm. Um, and we, we were bouncing around names, and uh, it, 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 it fits because, you know, Hill, Murray Hill, and, uh, you know, so. Right. And uh, I think, you know, you are from Maryland. You're not born in Japan, but to me... I am not Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the way you express your dishes, like... I, I tasted your dishes, and then and it doesn't look like Japanese at all, but somehow it tastes Japanese. So maybe you can just give us uh, some examples of your dishes. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I don't cook traditional Japanese food. However, there are elements within it uh, that would be considered traditional. For example, dashi. Um, you know, we make dashi in a very traditional way, kombu, um, um, you know, and uh, bonito, and, you know, cook it. As per the recipe of um, uh, Chef Yoshihiro Murata um, in Kyoto, and so, you know, there there are aspects that are traditional, but the final presentation is not likely to be construed as as traditional. Mm. Um, <laughs> you've eaten you've eaten the food as well. I mean, the, 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 I say it's the best compliment, but then I think about it. Just, you know, for example, if you sat down and ate the dashi or drank, you know, you know had a bowl of dashi. And you said, "Oh my goodness, John! This this tastes exactly like my grandmother made it," and then just left it there. I, I have to ask myself, "Well, was your mom a good cook?" Or a bad <laughs> 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 what, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, but you know, there are things you will recognize. Mm. Uh, we do um, have a tonkatsu on the menu, but it is a bit different. Mm. Um, the accompaniments are different. The dressing for the cabbage, there's dressing on well, the Well, let's talk about the tonkatsu yeah. is basically fried pork. Right. And it's like uh, izakaya, regular item in Japan too. And uh, it's fried and it, it's like a fried chicken, kind of approachable. Yeah, I heard, that, I heard that commercial before we got on. It said chi- chicken fried chicken. I don't know what chicken fried chicken is, but I wouldn't mind it. It sounds good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we have pork tonkatsu, which is a fried pork cutlet. We serve it with uh, a, a yuzu uh, vinaigrette dressed uh, napa cabbage, and our own tonkatsu sauce. Tonkatsu sauce, and then we also have uh, karaage, uh, fried chicken, and you know both preparations. I mean, we take time to brine our pork and and make sure that we bread it a day ahead. There's reasons for that. The fried chicken, we actually um, uh, you know kind of cure it for a bit with koji. Um, and then we buttermilk brine it uh, mm. for uh, at least two days, and then mm. we. we I, I like that koji marinade. Uh, it, it, we we just recently uh, started doing that about maybe three four weeks ago. Uh, I've been following with great interest guys like Jeremy Umansky mm. out in. Um, so, so listeners for who are not familiar with koji, what is koji? Aspergillus oryzae. It's. Um, um, Man, now I didn't know this was going to be a science program. Oh, uh, <laughs> it's like a beginner's version, six-year-old's okay. version. Uh, the six-year-old's version. Uh, it is a bacteria spore. 
Uh, um, or mold or whatever, mold, like something like uh, live and small and active. Yeah, I, I'm trying to pick and choose my words, of course, on live radio so that people aren't freaked out by it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, but uh, it, it essentially, for our purposes in the chicken, it, well, the way it changed it is we're finding that uh, it, it, it causes the chicken and to be more uh, juicy, mm. to, to remain moist. And it's such a distinct difference that every single person in our restaurant uh, that works there mm. sees the difference. Um, so, you know, it's it, it's things like this that we're continuing to grow and evolve and, and learning from other chefs like uh, mm. uh, Chef uh, Chef Jeremy out in uh, uh, Cleveland. You know, these are these are things that probably are well known to Japanese people, just not really well right. known. Well, there's to. a huge boom of koji because I actually made koji by myself. I grew it and then marinated my chicken all mm. overnight and I just changed dramatically. Almost sweet, right? Yeah, and then I think mm-hmm. uh, the amino acid in koji breaks everything down mm-hmm. and then more flavorful and softer and juicier and I couldn't believe that I made it. So, yeah, Just so people know, koji, the, the yellow koji we're talking about is used to make miso, mm. sake, soy sauce, um, you know, a myriad of things. So right. it's, it's not something that, uh, you know, we're out you using that no one's used before. This right. is really well known. Well, everything fermented in Japan tend to be uh, made out of koji. Absolutely. Right. And I'm hoping there's one uh, gentleman in Japan. There are only six companies who make koji in Japan. So I'm trying to have one of them sometime in the near future. But uh, but anyway, so so koji, you make koji and at your restaurant. That means to me, that's essentially Japanese. So that part is a really uh, respect. Um, the way you decide to create your menu in your way of uh, Japanese cuisine. Yeah, I'm, you know, this, these. By the way, these are things that we don't discuss with people at the tables, but we're, you know, unless they ask. But we're trying to do it so that it tastes good to us. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, this is. Uh, uh, it's fun to talk about. Uh, but at the end of the day, I just want people to really enjoy the chicken and say, "Wow, that was the best damn chicken I've ever had." Mm, right, and. Uh, yeah, and one of the dishes I think it's really you mentioned earlier the salmon roll and uh, East States sancho puree and yes. chips. That's that looks very Western. But it's then the somewhat. only dish that made it from the Crimson Sparrow menu to um, mm. Oka okay. in its form. Um, you know the the idea of that dish was really uh, sort of Sunday morning bagels and lox. And, you know, I figured, okay, if we yeast the sunchoke, it'll taste a bit like bread and, you know, uh, roe instead of, of uh, cured salmon. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say the people that re- like it really like it. They love it. Um, there are some people who just maybe haven't had something so yeasted or even had sunchoke before. Mm. Uh, but at least they're familiar with the roe. Right, and it's beautiful too. Thank you. Right. Okay, so, um, yeah, and by the way, you mentioned earlier about your uh, beverage programs, and you have uh, a sake sommelier uh, license, too. From so. SS, SSI. Right. So that's why you have a huge emphasis on beverage. And uh, I and, can't... And, get, and I like sake. <laughs> <laughs> and I love shochu. Yeah. <laughs> and you have whiskey, too. Yes. Um, so and I counted, you have 27 uh, sake, 8 shochu, and Japanese whiskey, which is becoming very popular now. The four of them. So, in a way, that's izakaya. I hope so. Um, but it's also f- from the perspective of why, why do we select the sake? It's because it goes well with the food that we're, we're, we're making. 
Um, you know, sort of the fun, but we've introduced flights of sake. We have four flights of sake. Mm. Um, and those four flights are actually um, flights that we recommend to guests when they order certain dishes. So um, it's not just, hey, taste, taste these three flights. We're, we're, we're actually going to push you a little bit towards some dishes. Mm. Um, you know, I have a, a, a great, uh, uh, great staff that's very energetic and very eager to learn, and they they learn these sakes and they learn the profile. So if you have questions, just ask them. They mm. will point you in the right direction. Right. And very proudly. And they, I can tell, they like their products too. They love training. <laughs> <laughs> and by tasting. Exactly. <laughs> right. And uh, so, as I said at the beginning of the show, uh, you go to Japan pretty often. And uh, so you um, even started at the sushi restaurant in Tokyo. Uh, a while ago, right? staged, right? Yeah. Just for uh, what five five weeks, I think it was. Right, but those longest uh, five weeks of working, I think I'd done. Right, yeah. It's you, a grueling schedule. Mm. So, uh, sushi restaurants are, I you know, have the utmost respect for sushi chefs. Um, you know, up at four thirty in the morning, at Skiji Market by five thirty, back at the restaurant by seven, butchering fish until ten, eleven to, to one o'clock, two o'clock lunch service. A one-hour nap, clean up, dinner, do it all over again after midnight. I, I, it's six days a week. Mm. It is grueling. Um, so tip tip your sushi chefs. Sushi <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, um, yeah, so based on that kind of experience, um, also at this point you have built and run two successful Japanese-influenced restaurants. So um, how do you describe the level of understanding Japanese cuisine in this country, uh, in the in the, I can only speak to to, to New York, um, and you know some other places I, that I've been that I know uh, quite well. But you know, I, I, I sort of expressed to you at at times there's a, a bit of a frustration level. Um, frustration being that the, through either accessibility, marketing, proliferation, um, it seems to be that there is a segment of people who think that the only Japanese food that exists is either sushi and or ramen. And th there is so much more. My mm -hmm. recent trip to, to Japan, I was there for two weeks. I dedicated myself to, to, to one, one bowl of ramen uh, because I wanted to try other things. You know, yakitori, tempura, um, yaki. I mean, there is so much other food that is available. Um, that I don't think people have a full appreciation that even exists. Mm. Um, you know, uh, the, the funny story, they come to Oka, people look at the menu and say, oh, thought you were a Japanese restaurant. Oh, what were you looking for? Sushi. Uh, well, we have fish. No, I was looking for California roll. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. But uh, th there seems to be a, a very linear approach to Japanese mm. food. Um, and this is an entire cuisine that's been designated by UNESCO as a world heritage treasure. Mm. Um, there's more to it than ramen and sushi, Aye. which I enjoy both of them. I mm -hmm. love them. But, you know, for me, uh, I was talking to Jamie Graves. He was on your program. Mm -hmm. I, if I had my choice, um, yakitori would probably be way, way up the list. Mm. Um, unagi, uh, Jamie was saying, I agree. Uh, there's so much uh, more to it than sushi and ramen. Mm. Um, 
you know, it's, it's much like saying, hey, let's go eat American food, and then someone drags you to McDonald's every time. You know? mm. So there's much, there's, there's much to explore uh, with Japanese food. And right. the most recent trip was triggered by the fact that I met um, a chef uh, in New York named uh, Mori Masafumi, who is quite a well-known wagashi right. uh, chef in Japan. Yeah, so we'll talk about in the next segment. But, the you know, the people think about Japanese cuisine as sushi or ramen. And it's interesting, right? Because it used to be that, I think I heard after World War II, people didn't eat sushi. And mm. now, Nobu opened. Oh, wow, this is fashionable, stylish, and healthy. And then even Delhi has sushi, packaged mm-hmm. sushi. And Whole Foods, of course. And it's great, but... Um, I think that's the bad part. It's too famous that people don't think of anything else. And it's proliferation. And, and I think you're right. I think a lot of it is, uh, well, it's sushi, so it must be healthy for me. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes a go-to. And, and that's fine. I think uh, the more omega-3s you eat from salmon, the better for you. But to, I think what I'm a little, uh, I don't know, I, I wish people would branch out just a little more. Um, you know, Japanese. When you think Japanese food, it, it seems that there's a reflex to only be sushi, and I, I think there's much, much more to explore that I think people would enjoy. If you, if you will eat uh, uh, raw fish, I, I think there's a lot of other Japanese food you might like as well, uh, because you're obviously a bit more adventurous and you'll, you'll probably enjoy some of the things that you know, Japanese people like. Mm. I think we talked about it. I mean, Japanese people in Japan don't eat that much sushi. It's once a month. (laughs) Once a month. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's not an everyday occurrence. Um, You know, even ramen, it may be once a week, but the other days, you know, tsukimen or udon or or, or something other than ramen Mm -hmm. uh, will be the fare. Um, So there's, there's you know, obviously Japanese people know Japanese food. Right. But, you know, Americans, I think, need to learn that there is something other mm. than ramen and sushi. Right. But, you know. Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. Like, you know, if you, when I go to Japan, I look for lunch places where you have white rice and miso soup and a big fish. It's like a lunch set menu, $10 with mm-hmm. some uh, pickles and some vegetables. It's just the best value. And you feel amazing. I, I, I went to a, a similar place in Himeji, outside, right outside of Himeji Castle. Um, I think they call it uh, the the um, Nama Tamago uh, mm. type restaurant where you get a bowl of rice. They come by, they give you literally a, a bowl of raw eggs. You mm-hmm. crack one in your rice, mm-hmm. and that's how you eat the, the that's egg. That's the one I the, grew up when the, I was little. <laughs> you, you, you literally can hear the chickens behind <laughs> the, the restaurant, mm. um, and you you get along with it. You know, either uh, some dried fish or pickles or, or mm. whatever the case may be, but it's delicious. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's, I think partly the information about Japanese cuisine is not, well, distributed enough. I have to work harder. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's the thing. And so also in this country, there are what's called the Japanese restaurants. In Japan, there's no Japanese restaurant. It's it's either, I mean, kaiseki or kapo. That's like you know, right. it's more like broader range, but they have a specific style. Otherwise, well, you go to tempura, sushi, yakitori, or kushiage, all those places. Exactly. I mean, kushiage is a great example in Osaka. Uh, you know, we can talk about that as well. But 
you know, it's fried things on a stick, mm. which I think would be a huge, um, a hugely accepted product here in America. Mm. Uh, you know, en- entire state fairs are built around <laughs> uh, <true>. a hot <laughs> dog on a stick that's battered and fried. Um, this is not a foreign concept. Mm. Uh, so I think there, that there is a place for that type of food. You know, the concern, I talked to some Japanese people who were like, well, would Americans eat fried food? Mm-hmm. And my response was, well, if they didn't, the colonel would not be as successful as he is. So right. uh, I think there's a place for all of it. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to eat it every day. Right. Uh, you know, this, these are things that, you know, you, if you enjoy Japanese cuisine, you could have a different, a different type of cuisine for, you know, mm-hmm. two weeks. Right. The other thing as you know, as you are a restaurant operator, so, you know, if you have eight-seat restaurants, which is very common in Japan, and then this minimum, this owner and his wife, or maybe a server, and then make, like, well, if you go to expensive temporary place, you might pay $100 or $150, but then there's no extra cost, and the rent is cheaper because it's small, mm-hmm. and but that person is an expert. So if you want to have a good tempura, you go to the place. And in, Japan, in Jap- Japanese uh, phrases, they say, mochiba mochiya, means let um, make mochi special, make mochi, meaning mm. leave it to the specialist. So I think that's the concept of restaurant in Japan. And here, because you have to have major box, like especially here in New York City, and I heard if it's in less than 60 seats, it's hard to make money. <laughs> Something like that. So I don't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's just a different mindset. So, you know, someone like you who's patiently trying to educate um, diners with some more broad idea of Japanese cuisine, I really feel... You know, you're amazing. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm having fun with it as well, but also, I mean, to, to be humble. I mean, I'm trying to learn myself. Um, this is why I do go back to Japan. This is why I do eat things that, you know, I, I probably wouldn't gravitate towards, you know, um, but I, I, in order to push myself mm. to taste and, and see different things, you have to do it. Um, it it's, it, it's the learning part of it. The journey mm. is 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 fun. Right. Um, oh, what do you have a kama, right? The color. We serve a yes, yellowtail hamachi color kama. Mm. So I don't know how many listeners know what's kama. Like it is. <laughs> it is the collar mm. uh, of a uh, hamachi fish. So yellowtail uh, have a color. Like I have no idea. Right. Like if you it, don't know what it is, it's crazy. You have no clue. Exactly, and it's. It's the second best-selling dish at Oka. Mm. And there are a fair number of people who, when it hits their table, are like, what is this? Mm. Uh, because they had a perception that hamachi would be presented differently, mm. sliced probably. Or, but we grill the collar. Mm. Uh, we, we baste it with uh, and glaze it with uh, um, a seasoned uh, soy glaze. Mm. And then it's basted with uh, yuzu. And right. it's finished with... Uh, uh, citrus, a uh, yuzu kosho. Mm, it's this kama is between head and uh, kind of like the neck part, but there's right. like a dish of bones and it's like a chunk of meat. There's sitting a bunch there. of cartilage in it, um, you know, and people enjoy it. It is it is incredibly delicious. So I think that there are a fair number of people who have ordered it, not known what it is, gotten into it, and said, mm. "Man, I gotta have one of those again." Right. Um, but I also appreciate the people that didn't that haven't had it before, knew what it was. 
but wanted to learn how to eat it. Mm. And uh, I, I sell a lot of kama. And by the way, if you go to Japanese uh, supermarkets in Japan or Tsukiji market even, it's uh, pretty expensive. It, it is expensive. Um, you know, I, we're, we're able to offer, I think, at a really reasonable price. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of food. Mm. Um, but it, the, and the way we prepare it, it has a great flavor, a great uh, grilled flavor, and I think that's why it's so popular. Mm. And uh, the other way you educate people, uh, you had a French chef from Osaka who had a collaboration dinner with Kushiage. Yeah, we actually had uh, two chefs uh, from Osaka. This was probably around three months ago. Uh, I had eaten at his restaurant in Osaka, Kushiagi 010. Mm. And when I went back most recently, I ate there again and also at uh, Yakitori Ichimatsu. Um, and uh, the chef at uh, Kushiagi 010 is uh, Kentaro Murakami. And, you know, the tasting menu, omakase, that he offers is incredible. Mm. Uh, things that I had never thought of uh, putting together in terms of flavors, but also uh, how light uh, mm. the, the the fried uh, items were. Right. Because it includes uh, some vegetables, some se- sequence of... Seafood, of vegetables, and meat. Mm. And really, really uh, an interesting and innovative uh, presentation. So mm. we had him here. Um, and the batter has to be the batter. art, right? Like make it light and... Crisp. Yeah, the funny story was as he came to Oka and then looked at our panko, and and you could just see he he he, he did not like the the panko, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he asked me what other types uh, and with an S how many other types of panko I had and I said I, I don't so we had to robuku some ground some mix some uh, we we came up with the right mix for him mm. um, but th- it, it was incredible because we, they anticipated about thirty portions of kushiyagi. Mm. I thought it would be a bit more. We ended up doing almost three times as many. And it was an incredible turnout by Japanese people who I think missed that type of food, Mm. who remembered it from Japan and knew that 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 night at Oka, it was going to be the only type of food Mm. that was served uh, for the special occasion. Mm. And the turnout was incredible. And Mm. I think the people that, you know, they knew, they kind of looked it up fried things, delicious fried things on a stick mm. that turned out for it, they also thought it was delicious. Because right. so. uh, this covers uh, seasonal, best seasonal ingredients with the best butter, which is art of the chef, and Absolutely. then the fries with the, the original good choice of oil and Absolutely. perfectly heated. So it's, it's, it's a very Japanese idea, but it's a perfect, you can do it anytime. Yeah, and absolutely. Even my parents can, my mom can cook too. So it, it's it's incredibly delicious, right. and I, you know it's, it lies uh, in that I think really just a sort of a fun comfort food type of, right. of experience. Right. And to, to perfect it, it's hard. But yeah, perfection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's a lot harder than it sounds and looks. Right. Okay. Um, so so you've been introducing all those new things to. Um, New York diners, and then uh, so we'll take a quick break. But when we come back, um, John is trying to do something new, which is wagashi, uh, that's Japanese sweets. So uh, we'll talk about it. So please stay with us.
Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, and my guest today is John McCarthy, who is a chef with a chef owner of the beautiful Japanese-influenced restaurant called Oka in Marehio, Manhattan, which opened in July last year. So, um, so in March last year, uh, you spent some time in Japan to study wagashi, or Japanese sweets. So, how did it happen? So... When was it? Janu- January, uh, we had uh, a chef uh, visit from Japan, Mori Masafumi. He owns uh, a confections um, shop called Amanea Kamada. Um, and he was brought to the restaurant by um, uh, Tama Shimada Bocher, um, who is a great chef in her own right. And during the course of his visit, we started talking about wagashi. And uh, it was it was a, a very interesting conversation, and, and it took place over the course of several hours. And the end result of it was is that he wanted me to come to Japan to see what he does, um, see his shop, see the production, and uh, you know just kind of learn a little bit more about wagashi. And you know I was very interested because my exposure to wagashi was probably what every other person's mm-hmm. exposure was, which is. They go to Kyoto, and then there's a wagashi shop everywhere, you know, right. every, every five feet. And, you know, you, you taste it, you eat it. They look beautiful. Mm. They're artistic. Uh, and then you eat it, and then you gravitate towards the ones you like. Mm. Um, so I was very curious about it. And, um, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to go over there and, and spend um, some time with uh, Morisan and, mm. and see his facility, actually get my hands involved in some of it, but also more just to learn ab- about the... We'll call it the art, the art of wagashi. I think it is an art. Mm, right. Okay, so that's interesting that the Japanese traditional confectionery maker comes to New York and then try to educate you. So Yeah, he had, he had actually, I think I forget where else he went, but uh, he, he got around quite a bit. Mm. And uh, uh, two weeks before I went to see him, uh, David Belay, uh, Chef David Belay, went to go see him and visited mm. uh, his shop as well. So... Um, you know, he his his work is amazing. Mm. Uh, really, pretty delicious. Absolutely delicious. Right. Well, the wagashi is um, you know people say uh, it's less sugary, which I don't. I'm not sure about. <laughs> but there's no cream or butter too much. Almost none. Yeah, I then, think I think it can be as sweet as Americans like it, but mm-hmm. it's it doesn't have maybe the uh, 
a richness mm. because of the lack of butter and cream. Mm. I, don't, right. I, I don't know. It, it is sweet. Right. But like you said, you know, it's stunningly beautiful. I think it's probably because, um, you know, Japan is such a gift-oriented culture and the wagashi shops are thriving still, mm. um, you know, along with all those other cake shops and Western sweet shops because it's so beautiful that it you is. want I to mean, give it to someone. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's really one of those foods that I think... <laughs> People get things and they go, oh, my God, this is this is too beautiful to eat. That might actually be true with some of the wagashi. Uh, you know, they're making they're making, um, you know, food that is directly reflective of place, time, season mm. and, and uh, uh, you know, trying to be in harmony with with nature. Right. Um, and if you've ever watched any of these these programs where they're they're doing that, mm. it, it's it's really incredible. And, uh, you know, Morrison spent, I think, 12 years, he told me, apprenticing. Um, so that's a long time. Mm. And, you know, that's, that's what it takes, I think, to do uh, wagashi at that level. Right. So, and, and you mentioned the seasonal um, ingredients, and that's why it's used for kaiseki tea ceremony, other than the tea ceremony. And uh, it's the reflection of now, this moment, right? So... Yeah, it's just the beyond just sweets to consume. I think every every wagashi in Japan right now is pink, right? For, for, <laughs> for cherry for blossoms. Sakura. <laughs> <laughs> you right. see so much pink wagashi right now. Right. So the you know the Morisan uh, apprentice twelve years probably to learn the sequence of the the seasons, and but the wagashi can be very casual, like daifuku. Mm -hmm. That absolutely. I think yeah, so what's daifuku? I, I heard you learned something about that too. Well, I mean, what, what I was trying to learn from Morrison was not so much specific, you know, uh, he, I, we tasted his dango's uh, mitarashi. Mm. Uh, he made the sauce uh, for me because I was particularly interested in that. Some use of kudzu, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a fascinating uh, uh, product. Uh, and also texturally, it, it yields things that I, that I like. Mm, uh, that's just a starch, but uh, it's a starch, right? It's just plants root, and then I think it makes more um, like um, chewier, a little than, chewier than uh, you know agar agar. Right, which is a little more can be it can be chewy, but it's a little more brittle. Mm. Uh, but the kudzu is, uh, is is very interesting, and so. You know, during the course of my time there, uh, I think I told you the one thing that I saw that it, it fascinated me was he makes his uh, uh, Ichigo uh, Daifuku, mm, uh, which is strawberry. Daifu. Strawberry Anko, which is a white, um, and then Anko is a white uh, uh, paste, bean paste. Right, Anko can be white, white or, or red. red. Right, so the, that was a he white He uses one. white. Right. Mm. And then the outer layer, and instead of just being mochi, was actually a marshmallow mochi. Mm, that's genius. It was. It was a really incredible. It was. It was like a chewy, really chewy marshmallow. Wow. And it was fascinating. Uh, really, re how he made it, and then also uh, the texture with the um, uh, strawberry. Really, mm. really incredible. So it's a, because it's a marshmallow in it. Incorporated, it's more fluffier. Or? It's fluffier. Mm. It's much softer. It's actually, uh, when you touch it, it's almost like a cotton ball. Wow. It's, it's really, it's really quite interesting. It was incredibly delicious. I, I ate more than a couple of those. Um, <laughs> Can you make that here? <laughs> well, I think I ate more than a couple because I would try to actually 
uh, assemble them and he'd say, oh, that one's yours. And I don't know if he was giving it to me because he wanted me to taste it or it just didn't mm. look right. <laughs> 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 so, I, I, you know, if, if the amount that I ate or it was an indication of the quality of my product, then I probably wasn't that good at it. But mm. uh, we're going to try to do something at uh, Oka. Um, you know, sort of as a an introduction uh, to for the guests. Mm. Um, you know, I probably won't sell them. It'll be more of like a pedophore or something, so that you know it triggers a conversation, mm. uh, so that people understand it. Uh, I also want to help uh, Morisan uh, into promotion uh, of Wagashi and him, uh, so we'll have information available about him uh, because I think you know some some payback to him for showing me, and you know he's invited me back. Uh, to Himeji uh, for further study or, or staging, or, and I may take him up on it. Mm, Beautiful wow. town, Himeji. First time I was there. Incredible castle. Mm. So that's near, relatively close to Osaka. Um, it's about an hour train ride, I think. Right, it's not too far. Not too far at all. Right, wow. Um, I think it's a city of about 500,000 people. Really? So it, it feels like a town, but it's actually a city. Mm. Okay, so uh, I can't wait to see your Petit Four at Oka. But congratulations on your you know, progress each time I see you. You have something new, and it's very exciting. Congratulations to you after uh, 100 more. This has become so much, uh, <laughs> so, much uh, and so natural, so well, easy. Thank you, but <laughs> I think I have to work harder to m- let people know about Japanese cuisine. <laughs> <laughs> Open a restaurant, Akiko. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we can open another one together. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah. So, please uh, keep us posted. And, uh, Will do. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you so much. Okay. Great so, to be here. Yeah. So, um, thank you, John, for joining us again. Okay. So, uh, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, <coughs> Sorry. Um, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or akikatema.com. And Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. And our engineer is uh, David Tatasiore. And thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.